It's an honor to open up the book of Genesis with you again today. If this is your first time with us, we're in the middle of a teaching series in the book of Genesis. We took a one-week break, but we will be continuing this morning. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. If this is uh, your first time, maybe you're visiting with us, maybe a friend brought you or you heard about us online, we uh, would ask that you take some time later on today to read through uh, the bulletin. You'll find more information about who we are as a church. And you could, uh, before you leave, they fill out the visitor page on the back. Some of our members will be at the welcome uh, connections table uh, on your way out this morning. They'd like to meet you and get to know you uh, a bit more before you leave. But I do want to emphasize a couple of things happening in the life of our church. One important thing happening tonight, if you're a member of our church, if you're a regular attender, or if this is your very first time, which, which means this is open for everyone, we're having our first of several a Friday night worship gathering. So tonight at 5 p.m., open to everyone, we'll be at Limeridian at Al Wassel Ballroom, uh, 5 p.m. first for some dinner that will be provided, and then for an extended time of worship. So an extended time of singing, an extended time of prayer, uh, extended time of teaching, and so on. So it'll be a, a joy to kind of extend the time we have in the morning on into the evening. We'll do a few of these throughout the year, and this is the first one, so you won't want to miss it tonight. We'll have childcare from zero to four, and then we're inviting the five-year-olds and older to join us for some family time uh, in the worship gathering. So 5 p.m., bring your whole family, bring your friends, and come join us. Also, please don't forget to sign up for our Global Missions in the Church Conference. You should see one of these on your seat uh, as you arrive this morning. I'm told that Sign-ups are almost full, at least for the main room. I think they might broadcast it to some side rooms, but uh, I believe the main room is almost full. And so I would urge you today when you get home to sign up for this conference online. You'll find all the information, including the website, uh, to fill out the form and get registered for this great conference. What a privilege it is to have such great teachers join us here in Dubai. Well, finally, before we start the sermon, I want to give you guys an update on Emmanuel Church of Fujairah. It was wonderful last week. I was sad not to be here, but it was wonderful uh, to drive out to the East Ocean coast out there. And it was rather symbolic to get there to Fajera. You have to drive through a narrow pass in the mountains, uh, which makes you feel like you're going to another world. And it really does feel like that, both physically and spiritually. Fajera is a place that has been starved for gospel preaching. Uh, there's very little of it there, and so we're glad uh, to send Steve there, and we're glad for Emmanuel Church of Fujairah to get started uh, last Friday. Steve did a great job in leading the service, a great job in preaching through First uh, John. I was thankful for, for many of you who came and attended and were an encouragement to them. I'm thankful for many of you who served with the children's ministry last week. We're thankful for your behind-the-scenes service so that those who are, are part of the church could all be in uh, the worship gathering with the adults on the first uh, week. I got to talk to several people in the morning, who were just thrilled and excited that this gospel witness uh, was happening there uh, in Fujairah. So please pray for Pastor Steve. Pray for those involved in the church. Pray that the word would go out. Uh, I'm told just two weeks ago, uh, one of the men who started joining the launch team came to Christ and became a Christian. And so we rejoice in salvation. We pray for many more there in the Indian Ocean coast to come uh, to the Lord, to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. Well, as we approach God's word today, let us go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would come to a clearer understanding of your word. Father, would your spirit through your word raise our affections for you in these upcoming moments. That we would see and savor Jesus more as we come to a deeper knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did you come to Dubai? Or Sharjah, or Elaine, or wherever you live. Why did you move here? What's an easy enough question for most of us to answer? If you're wanting to wax theologically, then surely you could say, well, well God brought me here. In his sovereignty, I'm here. He planned it. He brought me here. And if you were to say that, then you'd be right. He did. But what earthly circumstances did God use to bring you here? 
There are probably several possibilities. Surely some of you moved here to be near family. Maybe some of you are on holiday right now or are passing through and so some friends brought you. But I would surmise if we took a poll this morning that most of us came to Dubai for a job. Either we couldn't find a job back home or we got a better job here in Dubai so we can provide for our families or maybe it was a step up the corporate ladder and so we packed up our bags and we moved to the Arabian Peninsula. Now most of us are here because of work. And for many of us, work is quite a consuming measure for us. Much of my pastoral counseling involves around questions like, well, how can I continue in my job when my boss treats me so poorly? I feel rejected and I just want to quit. Or I'm just tired, I'm working so many hours, I never get time off, I have little time for my family, almost no time for church ministry. What should I do? Or how about this? I I just don't feel like my job is making much of a difference. I go day after day and I just do the same things. It seems like menial task after menial task. Is there something more for me? Is there something greater out there for me to do? Well, maybe these are some of the questions you're asking this morning. Well, what about work? What is it? What does God think about it? And how should we think about it here in Dubai? Well, if you haven't already taken out your Bibles and turned with me to Genesis chapter 2, do so now. Turn just a page or so into your Bibles. If you don't have one, you'll see it up on the screen as we go through it. You'll see it in the bulletin. And if you don't have a Bible today, we'd love to just give you one as a gift. Please come by our connections table and talk to us. And if we have any left, we'd love for you to have the Word of God in your hands so you could read it and study it on your own. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 that Basim just read for us. And we'll see what God has to say about work. And we'll see three things. I'll give you these as we go. The first thing that we'll see about work is that work is good. Work is a good thing. As we navigate through chapter 2, first thing I might say here is that it's important to note that it's really just a continuation of chapter 1. There are not two separate accounts of creation, as some critics have speculated. Now, Genesis 1 is the big picture, an overall development of what happened at creation. You could liken it to a movie or a documentary gives you the big sweeping picture. But then in verse 4 of chapter 2 and following, the movie projector is shut off. And instead, we're going to pause and show you some slides, some still shots, some pictures that relate to certain parts of the movie we just saw. What God is doing is giving us some close-up shots regarding creation on the sixth day so that we could look a bit deeper into the creation of humans. And so we move from a cosmic panoramic shot into a close-up one. And there are several things that stand out upon our first reading of these verses. The setting for this chapter is explained at great length. We see it mentioned in verse 5, no shrub or plant had yet sprung up. Well, this is a bit confusing for us because we're about to talk about humans being created on day 6. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I thought plants were created on day 3. Why aren't there any now? Well, some say it's just not chronologically ordered here in this chapter. Um, I don't know about that. I wonder if perhaps if you look more carefully at the language there in the original uh, Hebrew, the words for plants there seem to indicate thorns and weeds. That's what a shrub is in Hebrew. Perhaps what they're talking about here are the plants that come up from the first rains after the flood. Well, then in verse 8, as we move on, some more observations, we see that God had planted a garden. The word there means to be enclosed or fenced off or protected. We get the picture of a beautiful park surrounded by a hedge. There's a remarkable place filled with vegetation, filled with trees, filled with flowers, 
But more than that, it was to be a sanctuary for man. It was a place where God dwelled, a place where humans were to worship God. Once we move on, we also see some geographic locations given as to where this garden paradise was located. We know that the Tigris and Euphrates rivers dump into the Arabian Gulf around present-day Iraq. But we don't know the exact location of the Pishon and the Gihon. So it could be the northern part of the Gulf. Others say it's in the mountains of Armenia. Either way, the point is that this garden is a specific place. And it's now on day six that God creates man. We've seen the setting, and now we're going to get the snapshot, the still shot of how God is going to create humans, how God is going to create man. And for the first time, you have the words Lord God. If you notice there in in your Bible, you'll see Lord God. That's the first time we see it here in Genesis. And in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Elohim. And you have here the personal name of God, Yahweh. Shows us the intimacy that he has with humans as he creates them. And you see what he does, right? He takes the dirt from the ground and he fashions man's body. He breathes to man's nostrils Brings him to life. And you may remember seeing the great picture that the artist Michelangelo paints. That scene where he paints God's mighty finger. That huge finger reaching out to touch man's flaccid and lifeless hand. So the point is that man has been given God's life. God's very life was blown into man to bring him alive. Well, in this tender moment, God knits us together with his hands and with his mouth, gives us life. And God takes this man, takes this creation, made in his image, and he puts him in this garden. God gives him a home, a place to belong, a place to obediently worship God, to be in perfect fellowship. You know, the name Eden that we have for the garden here means delight or luxury, That's exactly what this place is. It's lavish. Man has everything at his disposal. Everything for him to enjoy. Except one thing. One tree. See, there was a tree of life in the garden that they could partake in and it would cause them to live forever. It means we were made with the capacity to die and that the only reason we're kept alive is through our faithful worship and obedience to God. So if Adam would cling to the tree of life as the only source for his life, he would live. As long as our first parents, Adam and Eve, would do so, they would live forever. But there's a problem because there's a second tree. You have the tree of life. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the one that they were not to eat of. We'll talk a lot more about that in chapter 3. So I'll leave it for that time. But I will just say this. That the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the pursuit of insight or knowledge, wisdom, education, information apart from God. This is the opportunity for human autonomy, for humans to reject God. In a sense, it was a a test of of obedience. Would man worship God alone or would they reject God to try to be God themselves? We'll come back for chapter 3 and we'll talk more about that. Now the point here is that God had provided brilliantly for man and he gave him stewardship over the garden. Basically, God gives Adam a job. He's told that He's the gardener of this amazing, lavish garden. Verse 15, we see that man was to work it and to take care of it. The book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth that work was actually a part of paradise. It was God's perfect design for humans. The fact that work is in paradise is a bit startling to us. Upon first reading of this, we're thinking, no, 
What? Work in paradise? When we normally think of paradise, we think of laying on the beach under a palm tree, thousands of kilometers away from work. You know, my blackberry's buried in the sand and a beverage is in my hand. That's paradise. And pretty good song lyrics too. Glenn, can you write that down? My blackberry buried in the sand, a beverage in my hand. Sounds pretty good. Now friends, we were made for work. Well, what is work? Well, to boil it down, work is what we have to do in order to live. Or in extreme cases, what someone else has to do for you to live. You have to grow, you have to hunt, you have to find or buy your food. We need to eat to live. You have to build a home or pay for someone else to build a home so you can have shelter. Work is what you have to do to live. And we often think of work as a necessary evil or even punishment. But it's part of the blessedness of Eden. It's part of paradise. It wasn't instituted after the fall of man in chapter 3. It was in God's perfect plan. Now, it's true that work has been marred and greatly affected through the fall. There are more difficulties now. We'll see some of that again in chapter 3. But work itself is not bad. I mean, imagine work as it was meant to be. It wasn't exhausting. It was always filled with tremendous accomplishments. There were no mistakes, no disagreements, no personnel issues. But even after the fall, work has dignity because it's something that God does. And because we do it in God's place as his representatives. So work is good. Let me just pause there, though, and let me bring us to two things which flow out of this first point. So work is good, but let me give you two things that flow out of that. So first, all work is meaningful. All work is meaningful. Now let me clarify something. All work that is not contrary to God's law can and should be meaningful. There's not more dignity in certain work per se, as if lawyers are more noble or have more dignity than doctors or a construction worker more than a concierge or a librarian more than a CEO. Now, you know, in biblical times throughout the Greek world, manual labor was considered demeaning. Greeks thought the material world was bad and that working in the dirt was dehumanizing. And so work that kept you from using your hands, that work was considered noble. So if you were a philosopher, you were considered to have a noble pursuit. But here in Genesis 2, in the second chapter of the Bible, we have God, the true God of the universe. And what's he doing? He's digging in the dirt. If you consider this, God placed his hands in the dirt. And later you have Jesus becoming man, God in the flesh, and he makes direct contact with the world. He has a body. He lives in the world. And prior to his three-year ministry at the end of his life, he was a carpenter. He built things with his hands, a savior of the world, a carpenter. Now, friends, there's amazing dignity in good work. We were made to work. And there are all kinds of work that needs to get done. Making shoes, working at a food store, being an engineer, Cleaning a house. Well, just think for a minute about cleaning your flat. Maybe you do it, or you pay someone else to do it. But if it's not done, if someone's spirit doesn't move across the face of the chaos of your flat and bring some order out of the chaos, you will die. I'm not joking, I'm serious, you'll die. Eventually, year after year, bacteria and germs will beat you and kill you. Chaos has to be turned into order. I mean, do you see how that's similar to what God has just accomplished in chapter 1 of Genesis? I mean, do you see how cleaning a house is bringing order out of chaos? I mean, this work images our creator. 
We have a God who does this. We have an opportunity now, a stewardship to do the same thing. I mean, gardening brings order out of chaos. You pull the weeds and you plant beautiful, flourishing flowers. And they blossom. Music is taking chaotic and raw sounds and bringing them together to form something beautiful and inspiring and encouraging to us. An accountant, an administrator brings order out of chaos. A doctor brings health from sickness. And if you're a homemaker, this is your job description, right? Every day, Sunday, make order out of chaos. Monday, make order out of chaos. Tuesday, repeat, and so on. We're bringing order out of chaos. See, these jobs, these roles are privileges that mirror what God did in creation. Well, here's what I want you to see. You don't just work to give your offering and then to find a time of rest. As if we think, well, if I can just get to retirement and not work anymore, or if my kids can just be grown up and get out of the house, then I'll rest. Then I'll enjoy life. Then I'll have a noble pursuit. Maybe you say to yourself, too, well, I'm not a pastor, and so I'll just try to get through my job, and then in my free time, I'll do God's work. Well, friend, I want you to see today that that is false thinking. Your work is God's work. There's no distinction. See, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the great Protestant reformers, they argued that all work, even so-called secular work, was as much a calling from God as the ministry of the pastor. There is no secular spiritual divide. So what I'm clearly not saying today is that all of us need to pack up our things in our office and go into full-time church ministry. But what I'm saying is that all of us, all of us who follow Christ are in ministry. Because you can be stunningly effective at the gospel, you can be stunningly effective at proclaiming the gospel as a concierge in a hotel, and yet You can also be a pastor and be one of the greatest enemies of the gospel if you pervert it or use your position for earthly gain. See, friend, your ministry at work is real ministry. So don't be embarrassed or ashamed by what you're doing. We need you. We need each other. So don't spend all your time aspiring to other jobs, work at what you do. Don't look down upon what anyone else does. Now, all work is meaningful. There's a second thing under the first point that work is good. A second thing that flows out of the first point, and that is that the aim of all work is to glorify God. The aim of all work, whatever it is that you do, the aim is to glorify God. So the kind of work God wants us to do is a work that's going to reflect his glory. We've already talked about this, that we're made in his image to image God to the world. And so we are to work in such a way that shows the world something about God. In the Bible, we see the difference between work done for man's glory And work done for God's glory. In Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel being built. The world's first skyscraper. They had new technology they had discovered. Amazing, right? But see, they used this technology, this new way of making bricks, not to bring glory to God, but to bring glory to themselves. To make a name for themselves. See, there's a way for us to work to get a name for ourselves. You do it for your own glory. But see, that work doesn't serve people, but eventually will just distort and degrade people. You end up using others to get where you want to be. Well, what if instead, what if instead you work in a distinctively Christian way? Not trying to advance your career, 
but instead trying to advance the gospel. What does that mean that every morning you need to get into the workplace early and stand by the door with a megaphone and shout out Bible verses at everyone when they enter? Is that what I'm talking about by distinctively Christian? What does it mean to work in a distinctively Christian way? Well, Jesus gives us a big clue when he tells us why he came. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Now, this is the example we are to follow. Whether it's in your job title or not, you, my friend, are a servant. You go out of your way to serve one another. There's no task that is beneath you. You do jobs that no one else wants to do. You go into work each morning looking at how you can serve in a surprising way. Martin Luther said the very purpose of every vocation is to love and serve one's neighbor. That in a sense, when we work, we are the fingers of God in the world. So what if you, as you went about your work, what if you had genuine joy during both the ups and the downs of your work? Think about what that would reveal to others about how trustworthy God is. And what if you prayed for a fellow worker to have more success than you at work? That would be serving them and modeling Christ's service to them. What if you then took it a step further and you actually helped your coworkers instead of always trying to find a strategic advantage for yourself, always trying to get into a better position? I mean, this is a radical mind shift, isn't it? That you go to work in the morning thinking about how you can help others achieve their maximum potential. How you can make them better. What if you were the one who led the celebration when someone else gets a promotion other than you? What if you made it your aim to make your boss look good? Whether he or she deserves it or not. What if you... Treat your boss the way God has treated you. Friends, that is distinctively Christian service. And how about this? What if you took jobs with God in mind and not your career? Now realize you may not have a choice where you work, but if you do, prayerfully discern where you can make a big impact for God. A job that fits your gifting, skills, regardless of the pay or prestige. One that brings you Christian joy, a deep sense of the fact that we are serving God. Now that's distinctively Christian job pursuit. We don't look at the paycheck or whether it's good for our career, but whether it's good for God and how it fits with how he's made us. You know, I'm encouraged one of the members of this congregation just made that choice. This person took a job taking less pay, smaller apartment, less prestige, and in some way might hurt their career. All because they wanted to honor God and felt like in this job they could serve him in incredible ways. That's a heroic choice. See, on paper, a crazy decision, but to God, it's a brilliant one. Well, how about this one? What if... You work well at things that won't bring you any glory. What if you work hard at things that won't bring you glory? This is what's different for the Christian. See, as a non-believer, you seek to get approval from your boss. They want their boss to see all the good things that they're doing. See, what if as a Christian, you humbly plod along at your job doing great work, all the while letting God be your public relations department. If your boss or CEO needs to see how great your work is, let God reveal it to them. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about what they see or don't see. Now, what if you did your best work when no one else was even looking? That you worked harder when your boss was out of the office. That you worked harder when your boss is on holiday. Oh, friend, this is Christian work. 
See, simply put, as a Christian, you should be outstanding at work. You should be exhibiting outstanding character. See, if we're going to reveal something about our brilliant God and his work, then you should work incredibly hard. You don't cut corners. You don't do anything unethical. You don't yell at other employees. You don't cheat. You don't come to work late and leave early. You don't lie. You don't break promises. You don't make excuses. You're not sick all the time. And here's why this is important. No, hear me, hear me say this. Here's why this is important. It's because your coworkers will not only make judgments about other Christians when they see your work in life, but they'll make judgments about God. As they see your life as a Christian, as they see your work as a Christian, they will make judgments about who God is. You are his ambassador. You need to be the kind of employee that your boss comes to you when they need to hire someone new and says, hey, do you have any Christian friends that I could hire? Your work is exceptional. Your attitude is wonderful. Do you have, any, do you have another friend, somewhere maybe at church, that I could hire who could work in our office? Wouldn't that be incredible? Friend, be outstanding. Now, there's a response. I've said this before. There's a response that Luther once gave when someone asked him how he could be a good Christian shoemaker. Now, today, some might be thinking, well, to be a good Christian shoemaker, I guess maybe we could stuff tracks down into the shoe or tape a Bible verse at the bottom of the box. Or maybe just say, God bless you when you hand the box over at the register. Right? No, maybe that's Christian shoemaking. Luther says something simple and yet I think really profound. His answer was this. To be a good Christian shoemaker, make a great shoe. Make a great shoe and then sell it at a reasonable and honest price. That was Luther's answer. Well, see, friend, the point is, do your job well so that it speaks of our Savior who served us by humbling himself to death on the cross. Would your work, would our work show the world something of that Savior? Would it point, would it image, would it direct people to Jesus? This is important so that your gospel words don't fall on deaf ears. Now, never, ever, ever does our Christian witness replace our evangelism in the workplace. Now, hear me say that. We always talk at Redeemer about the mission of the church, the mission of our church, to make disciples of all nations. We know that our good works can't ever bring someone to salvation. You may have heard that quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, the great Italian monk of the 13th century. You know, the quote that's been used a million times, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Well, first of all, that quote just isn't true. Second of all, there's no record that Francis actually ever said it. I mean, to be honest, I feel bad for the guy. I feel bad for him. He's falsely attributed as saying something that's horribly wrong. That's because the gospel itself is a word. And good news at that, it's news. The evangel, it's heralded news. That's what it is. And news must be reported. If you're going to get the specifics of the news, it can't be acted out. You've never seen a news reporter on the television just acting like the news. It'd be ridiculous acting like the weather. How do you become snow? I don't even know how you do that. No, they don't act out the news. They tell you the news. They tell you what has happened. Now, friend, the gospel is a word. We must tell it to people. People need to know that God is a holy God and that we are sinners. Now, we deserve death and judgment. And yet God in the flesh, Jesus, he came to live the life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that each and every one of us deserves. And yet he died in our place if we would repent of our sin and believe in Christ. 
Oh, friend, that's the message that we hold out. And we need to be vigilant at sharing this with the world. But how many of us have seen Christians holding out this message all the while being terrible employees? Sharing the gospel while doing bad work is like sticking earplugs in your coworkers' ears right before you share it with them. Sharing the gospel while doing terrible work, being a terrible employee, is like jamming something in their ears before you share it with them. They can't hear you. Not only will it not change their heart, they won't understand what you're saying. Your lips will be moving but they just won't get it because your life doesn't look like this God that you're talking about. Friends, may our Christ-exalting work back up our gospel-preaching lips. And so work is good. We want to honor God with it. We want to glorify God with our work. But there's also temptation for each of us in our work. And that temptation is to make work our everything. That's the second point this morning. We'll move more quickly through the second and third point. But the second point in our sermon is that work is not our everything. It's not our everything. See, Adam was given the task to work the garden, but this wasn't his primary identity. If we look closer at the original text here, the word in verse 8 that we have translated put or placed, that God put man in the garden. A more accurate translation is that God rested man in the garden. But that sounds quite strange to us. And so we use the easier English word to understand, put or place. The point is man is given rest there. And then the first thing he's told to do is work. That's odd. Here's this beautiful garden paradise that man is to rest and to enjoy. And God says, oh, by the way, get to work. Well, here's the thing. Work is important. It's good. I've just spent the largest portion of my sermon telling you that it's good and important. But friends, it's not where we get our identity or significance from. Now, our significance comes first and foremost from being in relationship with God. Now, back in the garden, Adam's primary role was to do this priestly service. It was to worship and to be in fellowship with God. That's what man was created for. He was to keep and obey the commandments and enjoy his God. One of the ways to do this was to serve and keep the garden. But it was always his relationship with God that was central But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that work has become an all-consuming thing for us and has supplanted our relationship with God. It's overtaken that which is to be most central. Perhaps it's become our identity. You know, for those of you who have worked hard to get ahead in your profession, do you take great pride in your job title? Do you work insanely long hours to stay at the top of the pack? Maybe you've even taken a job so that your mother or father will be proud or so that your friends will think you're doing something significant. And you start wearing your job title as a proud badge of honor in which to feel important. And for the moms who are here who stay at home with kids, the temptation may be to try to be the best mom in the world. And so you start getting your identity Not from Christ, but from what other church members or your Facebook friends think about how good of a mom you are. You know, see, the problem with work is that we can try to get our meaning and identity from it and not from God. We were given work as humans. That means you need to work to have a meaningful life. But if you make work your meaning, it'll end up destroying you. If you get your security out of your job or how much money you make, it'll ultimately fail you. You'll just be thinking about making more and more money when you're there on the beach on holiday. You'll be checking 
your smartphone over and over again to see if you got that next important email to make that important deal. Well, here's a question regarding security, just a question to diagnose your own heart this morning. When you have the prospect of making more money, what's the first question you ask yourself? I mean, honestly, are you deliberating about how you can give more and more money away to the church and other ministry? Or is your first thought about what you're going to do with that money for yourself? Maybe it's saving it so you think you'll never run out. Or maybe it's buying whatever it is that you want. Now, if God has given you the gift of making lots of money, which certainly can be a gift and God can use it, then I guarantee he also has given you the gift of giving away lots of money. I'm not just talking about a 10% tax or tithe that you make yourself give. I'm talking about lavish generosity. Talking about joyful giving. See, all of this is our challenge. We can easily turn a good thing in work and make it our means of significance or identity or security. We take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, thereby making it a dangerous thing in our lives. We all do it in some way. It's a great temptation for each of us. And so we need help. What we need is we need rest. Friends, we need rest. We see God on the seventh day, he rested. And so we can assume that things that we do as rest are good and life-giving. That work is not all there is to life. I mean, Tim Keller has said, You will not have a meaningful life without work. But you cannot say that your work is the meaning of your life. See, if you make work the purpose of your life, even if that work is church ministry, you will create an idol that rivals God. Our work will become more important to you than God. The things that work can give you, whether it's security, significance, identity, will be more important to you than getting those things from God. And so, friends, you need rest. That's the third point of the sermon today. If you're taking notes, the third and final thing we want to look at this morning from Genesis chapter 2 is that you need rest. Verses 1 through 3, we see that on the seventh day, even God rested. Now, Did he rest because he was mentally or physically tired? Did God say, oh, I've had an exhausting week of creating. It was so tiring. I just want to lie down and watch a movie and just relax. Is that what he said? Was was it just too much? No, no, no. No, it simply means that he ceased from creating. That's what Sabbath literally means. It means to stop something. It means to cease. God was sitting back and enjoying his creation. He was finished creating. He was marveling at it. He was satisfied with what had been made. But it's not that he stopped working completely even. I mean, Jesus said exactly this when he healed a crippled man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. Though God rested from creating, he ceased from creating, but he continues to work in sustaining the world by his power, governing it by his providence, and ensuring the survival of his creatures. I mean, in fact, if God stopped working, then everything would just dissolve into nothing. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Son of God is holding together the universe by the word of his power. No, God ceased from creating. He was delighting in what had been made. I mean, how refreshing must have it been for him to look out and see a creation free from sin, free from curse, no death, no decay, pristine blue skies and the evening sky sparkling with diamond stars. And on this day, God rests and enjoys it. You know, it's interesting. Maybe you observe this in your community groups as you worked your way through these 17 verses this week. You know, it's interesting that after every other creation day, there's an evening and a morning. Did you notice that? But, but not here. 
Here in the seventh day, there is no ending. It's also the only day that's blessed by God, consecrated by God. It stays outside the six days of creation. There's no corresponding creation day in the foregoing week of creation. We see the literary pattern of six plus one is designed to highlight the seventh, this number of completeness we see in the Bible, this important number, this important day. Now, obviously, the seventh day is very, very important. This lack of evening and morning terminology seems to indicate that it's not yet finished, that we're somehow still in the seventh day. And the point is that God will provide rest. The point's not necessarily rest from our labors, because, friend, we're always going to get tired again. Even if your work has given you several days off for Eid next week, it would be good to take some time to relax. But even if you take that or a month holiday, even that won't satisfy the deep rest of the soul that you're yearning for. Now, it's true that the Sabbath was the covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant that we see God gave Old Testament Israel. Israel was commanded to rest on the seventh day. It was pointing them to some, something, to someone who is yet to come. And we see that in the New Testament, that it's clear that the Sabbath is not binding in the same way it was for Old Testament Israel today. In fact, in Colossians, Paul identifies the Sabbath as a shadow along with its requirements regarding goods, festivals, and the new moon. And the Sabbath, in other words, points to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. Friend, Christ is the Sabbath rest that you need. This is the rest that Adam and Eve had in the garden. But as we'll see in chapter 3, their sin and rejection of God gets them expelled from the rest they had. This rest they enjoyed in the garden, they're expelled and their work is cursed. They lost their Sabbath rest. But at the beginning of the very next week, God goes to work again. This time, not for the work of creation, but for the work of redemption. Adam has now sinned, but the Lord starts his redemptive work. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need the real Sabbath rest. In Psalm 3, we get a little sense of this when David says that there are 10,000 people to his right and 10,000 people to his left, and yet he lays down to sleep. See, when you're tired, you need rest, but the point is not the amount of sleep that you get, but the depth of your sleep. You can sleep through your eyes, but unless it's the REM, rapid eye movement sleep, you won't function well. And in Psalm 3, David is saying, I've got all these pressures on me. I've got 10,000 people here, 10,000 people there. Everybody's chasing me. Absalom and his gang are coming to hunt me down, to kill me. But even in that, I can lay down in peace. See, what he's talking about is an REM of the soul, a deep rest of the soul that rests in God. See, in Hebrews 4 that Roy read for us earlier, we see the promise of entering God's rest still stands. That Jesus can help you handle being out of work, having a bad job, or overworking. And those things sound wonderful, don't they? And they are. But I'll tell you, friends, Jesus offers an even greater rest than temporary rest from the rat race of work. See, after six days of creation, God looks at the creation and he says it is finished. It's done. Well, centuries later, God in the flesh, Jesus, hung there on the cross. And do you remember the words that he cried out? It is finished. The first time God rested because creation was finished. And here's the second time Jesus finished the work of accomplishing redemption on our behalf so that we could have rest. 
Jesus was there on the cross paying for the sins of all believers. And it is by believing in Jesus that you enter the true REM rest of the soul. He paid the penalty for our sins by facing God's wrath. And when you rest in Christ, you've accomplished all that you need. If you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ and his finished work, I encourage you to do so today. To believe in him before you leave this room this morning. You see, the point of Hebrews 4 is that when you believe in Christ to save you, you enter this rest now. We'll see the full effects of it when we're in heaven, when we're in glory, but you can enter that rest today. And it's until you believe that the only approval, only significance and identity you need is from God, until you believe that, only then will you stop trying to find these things from your work. Only when you rest in God can your work just kind of become work. When you finally get this, it won't matter what others think. Work is just work. And it isn't about building your kingdom or becoming a more secure or successful person. You could start working even if you don't get recognition. You can take jobs that seem demeaning and degrading. Oh friend, do you know this rest? Have you entered into this rest? Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friend, come to him and he will give it to you. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And when he cried out, it is finished. Our redemption was complete. And we praise you for this king who gave his life so that we don't have to try and work for our identity or for salvation, but we can rest in his grace forever. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that his sacrifice atones for all of our sins. And so that today, this morning, we can proclaim and we can sing loudly that our souls find rest in God alone, our rock and our salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.